0: In depth journalism in the Memphis community, The Daily Memphian is of Memphis, not just in Memphis, and seeks to tell the stories of this city. TheDailyMemphian.com Truth in Place.
1: At the top of the podcast, Joris Ray is the interim superintendent of Shelby County Schools, selected by the SCS board. Ray comes from the cabinet of outgoing superintendent Dorsey Hobson, who leaves his post January 8th after six years. Hobson started as an interim superintendent. Ray intends to apply for the job on a permanent basis. School board chair Shante Avant says the search could take up to 18 months. Ray is a 20-year veteran of Memphis City Schools turned Shelby County Schools starting his career as a teacher at Kirby Middle School. Memphis City Council members will have three vacant seats on the body to fill at their December 18th council meeting, Districts 1 and 6, and Super District 8, Position 2, No, that was not the plan. The plan was to fill District 1 last month as a result of the epic political saga that saw more than 100 roll call votes and no one with seven votes, lots of interest in the other two appointments. Just before the December 13th deadline for contenders to file their paperwork for the other two appointments, 21 people had pulled the paperwork for District 6, 22 for District 8. No, this is not normal at all for a city council appointment. Elsewhere at City Hall, Al Lamar, a Williams-Sonoma executive, who was a doctor and planner at the Pentagon before that, is Mayor Jim Strickland's choice to head the Solid Waste Division. Earlier this year, Strickland said he would break off the part of the city division responsible for collecting your trash and other garbage from the Public Works Division to focus on improving that. Lamar's appointment goes to the city council for approval. And Indigo, an ag tech company expanding so much at Toyota Plaza, that the plaza is going to be called Indigo Plaza. The announcement this week is 700 jobs at the office space by AutoZone Park. Still awaiting details on the local and state incentives that made this deal come together starting in September. There's a new book about Overton Park by Brooks Lamb, currently the Conservation Projects Manager for Rural Lands at the Land Trust of Tennessee, and a Rhodes College alum who worked for the Overton Park Conservancy for a time, which is how the new book, Overton Park, A People's History, came to be. He joins us from Nashville. And Brooks, I'll begin with a quote toward the front of the book that really jumped off the page to me. It's about the origins and plans for Overton Park here in Memphis at the dawn of the 20th century. And it reads, city parks slowly began to make the transition from the natural landscape that Kessler and Olmsted envisioned to attraction-filled spaces in the early 20th century, only a few years after Overton Park had been established. Park purists were angered by this change in function and sought to make the alterations as minimal as possible. And you even quoted an architectural academic as calling those additions, starting with the nine-hole golf course, necessary evils adding that despite staunch objections from those who wished for parks to exist only as nature sanctuaries for urban residents, progressives pushed on. So, Brooks, my first question here is, has Overton Park ever in its existence been without this kind of friction or conflict about its purpose?
0: Well, no, I think is the short answer. So it is really interesting, and you've already touched on several of these things but the overton park that we know today one that has art museums and schools and zoos and all of these other things uh, would certainly never have been envisioned by george kessler who designed the park uh, it was initially uh, designed as a place just to connect with nature to mm-hmm. as some have said escape the chaos of the city um, but almost as soon as it was uh, founded It has been in contention with these other entities wanting to come in and and serve citizens in different ways. And and that's the interesting thing, right? Is that none of these different institutions within the park are competing with each other for the purpose of, you know, pure competition. It's all about how different people see the best way to serve the citizens of Memphis. And so we've seen that in constant conflict with one another, uh, even since 1901. Uh, We certainly still see it today. Uh, And, you know, as the park continues to grow, uh, the one constant theme of the park's history is change. Uh, I imagine we'll continue to see these things be in conflict with one another. Um, But in some ways, this conflict is good. It gives rise to lots of uh, opportunities for Memphians to Really, get a great experience every time they visit Overton Park. You
1: you also describe how the reform efforts then gave way to the concept of urban urban parks as an expected amenity of city life. Uh, so so these continual transitions and sometimes conflicts um, are 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 really kind of a characteristic of of the park and how we use it.
0: Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. I mean, you, you see. Uh, the park evolving, uh, not just uh, out of nowhere, but actually evolving with the times. So uh, we actually, uh, a good example of that, what I think is one of the best examples of that is uh, the Overton Park Shell, which is now, everyone knows it as the Leavitt Shell, was built in the 1930s uh, and actually offered a form, uh, one, uh, for Memphians to, to gain employment. Uh, it was during the Great Depression, and this was a, a Works Progress Administration project to employ Memphians. But it also became a way uh, to serve Memphians who couldn't afford uh, entertainment. So they would go to the Overton Park shell for free concerts and free operas and these sorts of things. So um, its evolution is not uh, haphazard in any way. It's It's been uh, quite intentional uh, in most aspects, and it's uh, it's really interesting to, to study that history and to see how it has evolved with the context of the city and even the nation uh, and not just evolved in a vacuum.
1: So at some point down the road when someone in the future looks at the park in the early 21st century, how do you think they're going to view the exit of the Memphis College of Art and the Memphis Brooks Museum of Art from Overton Park?
0: Yeah, I, I, a funny <laughs> story. Uh, when I was Finalizing this book, I was in my uh, final stages of drafting the manuscript, editing the manuscript. It was already written; I was just fine tuning. And then I uh, got on the computer and saw an article saying, uh, "Well, the Brooks Museum is going to go to the Riverfront," and I was kind of uh, shell shocked. I just, uh, you know, I'd just written a book about how it was an integral part of the park, and and, and still is uh, in many ways. Um, but I do think, uh, you know, as I mentioned in an earlier uh, response. The one constant theme in the park's history, uh, at least in regard to its landscape and how it has served the people, uh, is change. Um, another constant theme is, uh, how people have come to become stewards of the park. But, but that change aspect is, is really important. And so while it is scary and while it's almost impossible to think what future Memphians, uh, future people will think about the departure of these two incredibly important institutions, uh, I think we can find hope for the future of Overton Park and and the the present of the park by examining its past and seeing how it has evolved with the times. Seeing that even if something leaves or if something comes in, people find a way to cultivate a new sense of affection for the place uh, that leads to enhanced stewardship and and new generations creating relationships with the park. So I think there are a lot of opportunities uh, with these two institutions leaving and in many ways i'm very sad to see them go but i do think there's an opportunity for growth and uh, i do think that overton park will play out the lessons that it has played out so often in the past and, and evolve again and and become perhaps even a even a more important uh, historic and beloved
1: institution uh, of course, a significant chapter in the book, as well as the park's history, is the battle on, on several levels over the proposal to run an interstate through the park. And today we, we hailed the 1971 U.S. Supreme Court decision in that case as a turning point. And maybe because of that, it's, it's easy then to forget that the issue itself still had a lot of life left in it, even after the ink dried on on that landmark decision. And it still could have gone very differently.
0: Sure, sure. And it it is very easy, uh, historically, to look back on a a certain date as, oh, the Supreme Court decision was the uh, ultimatum of uh, the interstate battle. Uh, But in reality, you know, it it ran from the mid-1950s when this idea was first introduced until almost, you know, in the 1980s. Um, And so, yeah, and I think, uh, you know, what's interesting and, and what's perhaps the most powerful or one of the most powerful lessons of the book is that it really took a group of people who were devoted to being stewards of this place in order to protect it. And when I say stewards, I'm not, you know, sometimes that conjures up the image of a professional ecologist or or a professional environmentalist. But when I say stewards, I mean people who have spent time in the park, grew up there. Charlie Newman, who was famous for his role with the Supreme Court case, grew up walking uh, through the park on the way to school. He grew up playing baseball on the Greensward. He had these intimate connections and this intimate relationship with the park, as did so many of the other people involved with Citizens to Preserve Overton Park. So, what sustained This decades-long effort was not just, you know, one lawyer's legal interpretation of a few different statutes. It was this, you know, lifelong connection to a place that so many people had cultivated, and I think that's really powerful, not only in that instance of how the park was preserved from being destroyed by an interstate, but I think it will be powerful as the park continues to to move forward.
1: And, And I think perhaps one of the reasons that that, Overton Park has this very interesting and very human history, is that people do feel so passionately about it uh, through the generations.
0: I think that's correct. Yeah, we see a multi-generational commitment to Overton Park. So that's one of the things that was really exciting for me uh, as someone who got to know the park as a college student starting in 2013 and 2014. And then you're know, having uh, a relationship and, and I think a strong sense of stewardship for the place that developed after only five years um, to talk with people who have memories of being in the park from the 1940s, to talk with people who moved here uh, in the 1970s. And the park was one of the first things they explored and they continue to explore it to this day. Uh, so to see <clears throat> how many different ways people know the park and, and for how long those relationships have lasted is, is just really, uh, you know, beyond interesting. It's really inspiring uh, to see that people have continued to cultivate and nurture those types of connections with this place. And I think that's why it feels such an important public place in Memphis.
1: All right. We've been talking with Brooks Lamb. He is the author of the new book, Overton Park, A People's History. You've heard all about and we've certainly written all about the nine hour council meeting on November 20th to fill one of three seats on the Memphis City Council, somewhat overshadowed by that is a 10-hour set of committee meetings this past Wednesday by the Shelby County Commission. Omer Youssef, the Daily Memphian reporter who covers Shelby County government and politics, is here to talk about the topics that kept him and the commission in the committee room for that long. Omer, among the items on the agenda was hearing Shelby County School Superintendent Dorsey Hobson's plan to close 28 schools and build 10 new ones over several years, and at least partially funded by Shelby County government, through a county budget that's ultimately approved by the commission. So what kind of reception did the plan from the outgoing superintendent get at this early stage of consideration?
2: The commission's point of view on this is that it can be best explained by Commissioner Michael Laley, who also chairs the Education Committee, is that this plan is a great starting point. It's not anywhere near its final version, but it gives commissioners a sense of what to expect moving forward. And and again, uh, this
1: is a, a, a plan that would unfold over over several years and would involve a, a, a pretty major commitment in terms of funding just for that capital cost from the county commission. Um, the the uh, other thing that comes into play here is you have eight new county commissioners on the thirteen member body who just started working on September first. Any sense that there was any kind of overload? in in terms of their consideration of this, or did they pretty much go with the flow and say, yeah, let's talk about this?
2: I think the biggest concern was from uh, Commissioner Tammy Sawyer, and she asked Hobson why there wasn't more community engagement before he unveiled his plan to the Shelby County School Board Tuesday night, and his response was that he wishes the original headlines regarding that was more about the new schools and not so much on the school closures, and he told Sawyer that by the end of this, that there will be plenty of community community engagement with this plan moving forward.
1: And, of course, the Shelby County Schools Board will, will also have to approve this before it even goes to the commission. And in past school closings and right-sizing plans, which I think is the term the school system prefers, that uh, there have always been plans in the original proposals for that. Uh, the committee sessions on Wednesday also featured a recommendation of a tax increment financing or TIF district for the $950 million Union Road development, but the commission had some concerns about gentrification. What were
2: those concerns, Omer? Commission Chairman Van Turner asked developers and officials with the Union Row project what they were going to do to make sure that Memphians, who wanted to live in the development, what steps were being taken, because the numbers he had heard about the average apartment cost were about $1,400, which is not up to par for Income levels of most Memphians, and Kevin Adams in response told him that was just an average, and that there will be units available for seven hundred dollars. But that still did not satisfy Turner and other concerns that were brought up with the Union Row TIF. So, what do you think that means for a vote by the by the full commission? The recommendation got seven votes yesterday, so the Union Row TIF will likely pass Monday. But as far as Longer concerns, another concern was brought up by Commissioner Tammy Sawyer about not enough MWBE requirements, minority and women business enterprises. As far as the level of involvement, there wasn't a set target. Kevin Adams told her about 28% was the goal, but she wanted more of a hard stance on that. And the thinking behind that is, is that this commission will try Specifically, Sawyer and Turner will move more towards making sure those MWBE goals are met for big projects such as this TIF, which is arguably the biggest TIF this commission may approve during this current term. All right. You also got some insights
1: from the commission on how they may proceed, if at all, with the vacancy in State Senate District 32. That is the seat that Republican Mark Norris has held for a number of years, and that is now vacant because Norris has become a federal district judge. Uh, What what seems to be the read from the commission at this point? Because the special general election on this will not be until March. Uh, Should the commission, does the commission seem to be leaning toward an appointment to the
2: seat until the election is decided? The commission is leaning towards just letting the special election run its course. Van Turner, who sponsored the resolution even to bring this to the table, said that unless something changes over the next few weeks at this, he'll likely withdraw his resolution altogether. Let the special election take its course, and then they will go from there.
1: All right, more coming up from Sam Stockard, our Nashville correspondent at the Daily Memphian on just who has filed for that seat, which covers not only parts of Shelby County, but also Fayette County as well. Um, The uh, Union Road TIF coming to the City Council for approval next week as well. And then it goes to the state for approval. All of that after Monday's County Commission meeting, which Omer will be covering. And let's invoke the committee disclaimer here. Actions taken in the City Council and County Commission commission committees, are recommendations and are not binding on the full body when it votes. However, if you have most of the council members or commissioners in a committee session, it's a pretty good indication of what could happen when the full body votes. Back to something mentioned at the top of the podcast, the large number of citizens who have expressed interest in the two newest city council vacancies that come into the mix for the city council this coming Tuesday. 20 people picking up the paperwork in one case and 21 in the other case. Again, this is not normal for a council vacancy, many more than the council usually sees. And it's hard to escape that the council's difficulties in filling the first of the three vacancies is responsible for the outpour. The council has had vacancies before throughout the 50-year history of the mayor council form of government here, but never has the council had three of its 13 members serving by appointment at the same time. Critics of the council who have become more vocal in the last year on several issues contend the council would not be in this dilemma if council members Morrison, Fully Love, and Ford had resigned a few weeks after the August county general election and thus allowed the council seats to go on the November ballot. And there is still the idea that if this goes on much longer, threatens to spill into the new year, that these seats could maybe go on the special election ballots for the state Senate seat Mark Norris has vacated. Primaries for that, as we said, in January, with a special general election in March. If the council cannot get the job done this coming Tuesday, that drumbeat will get louder. In picking Joris Ray as the interim superintendent of Shelby County Schools this week, several Shelby County Schools board members, including former city council member Scott McCormick, noted that the board picked Ray on the first and only ballot Despite a robust school board debate about whether the interim should be able to apply for the job on a permanent basis and with three viable contenders for the job at that, school board member Billy Orgel said the board discussion was, quote, so respectful and quoting again, nobody called somebody out publicly. This could affect next year's 13 council races on the ballot in October. Now, that's a long time for enough voters to be unhappy enough to make changes at the polls. And the council is going to change in the 2019 elections just by virtue of the final changeover in council seats from the 2007 election and its aftermath that saw the largest turnover of council seats in the history of the mayor council form of government, followed by the largest return of incumbents, to the council in 2011. What does or does not happen at the council next week could be pivotal for determining and defining the sea change that is ahead one way or another for the city council. Subscribe to The Daily Memphian at dailymemphian.com. You can subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Daily Memphian, at DM, and at Omer A. Youssef. The Daily Memphian Politics Podcast comes to you on the OAM Network.
0: In-depth journalism in the Memphis community, The Daily Memphian is of Memphis, not just in Memphis, and seeks to tell the stories of this city. TheDailyMemphian.com. Truth in place.